As we were putting together this episode, we kept on asking ourselves this kind of bizarro question. What does love sound like? Our newest Israel Story producer, Barry Finkel, went out to get some answers. What does love sound like? What, what is the question again? What does love sound like? Love sound like? Like a dream. High gain, distortion, high gain. Sex. Like the sound of the wave. Something kitsch, you know, like a movie, like a movie scene or something. In a sound or in text? Either. Love is silence. (laughs) Um, I stole this from Pulp Fiction, but I think it's sitting quietly in a car, not talking. I just, I mean, I don't think love makes a sound. Soft music. Like her. (laughs) (laughs) Love sounds like a great word. A call. Everything. Everything. Sound of everything. Growing up, Valentine's Day was never really huge here in Israel. We had Tu Be'av, sort of the Jewish love holiday, which always seemed kind of like a pale version of the holiday of red roses and heart-shaped chocolate boxes we saw on TV. But I guess that as the diplomatic ties between Israel and the U.S. continue to deteriorate, the cultural ones are just getting stronger and stronger. Now, Valentine's Day's all the rage. Here's Or Ginsberg, the head chef at Concierge in Tel Aviv. Because we all are uh, young, romantic uh, owners and people here, so we're going to make something really cool for um, couples. A lot of uh, strawberries, a lot of uh, raspberry coolies, a lot of red and pink colors. So today, the final episode of our first season, our Valentine's Day special, has a particularly 80s pop-like theme. What's love got to do with it? Thanks, Dina. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman. This is Israel Story. We have four wonderful stories for you today, all about love and all those crazy things we do to find it. Arranged marriages in Tulkarem, a Jewish-Arab love affair, the matchmaking quest of my downstairs neighbors, we've got it all. But before we begin, a real quick request. I know people hate this, so I'll keep it as short as possible. You know, Israel Story was basically born by accident. We were just big This American Life fans, and we wanted to be able to hear stories like the ones they aired, but about Israel and in Hebrew. We looked around, and there wasn't anything even remotely like it on Israeli radio. So even though we didn't know anything about radio at all, we were like, okay, so let's do it ourselves. Let's make the Israeli This American Life. Easier said than done, obviously. But three years later, here we are. Israel Story, or Sipur Israeli really, has become a popular national show in Israel. And now we're super excited to be finishing our first season in English as well. Anyway, Israel Story has been extremely lucky to be supported by generous grants from the Righteous Persons Foundation, ROI, the Natan Fund, and the Foes Foundation. But a big part of what allows us to do what we do is listener support. So if you enjoy our show and want to hear more stories about 19th century antiquities forgers in Jerusalem, municipal hitmen in Elat, ultra-Orthodox moms who adopt babies with Down syndrome, or cursing ex-IDF buffalo farmers in rural Wisconsin, please go to the Israel Story page on Tablet Magazine's site, that's tabletmag.com, and click on the donate button. Anything at all helps, and we have big plans in store for the next season. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. 
All right, that's it. We've got an episode to play. Let's begin. What would you do if your parents' dying wish was something so utterly opposite to who you are, so completely foreign, that it would change basically everything about your life? Ghazi al had to face this exact question, and well, I guess you'll hear where it landed him. TLV1's Shoshi Shmulowitz brings us this story. Act 1, The Queen Rania Tree. You can't date without being married. That's like the Islamic way. You can't date someone without marrying them. So it's like the ultimate, let's play Russian roulette with your life uh, way of marriage. It's like, right, you really, well, let's get married and then let's date. Ghazi al is a Palestinian-American writer and director. He was born in a refugee camp in Jordan, and then when he was two months old, the family moved to Brooklyn. That's where he grew up, and he is a Brooklynite through and through. Ghazi's family is Muslim, but he's not religious, and that's part of the reason why, at age 34, much to his parents' chagrin, he was still unmarried. In the Arab custom, the oldest son usually is the head of the family. That is the case here with me. Arabs will say Abu, which is father of, and then the name of the first son. In my case, for my dad, it's Abu Ghazi. He walks around with this title attached to me, whether he's, <laughs> whether he likes it or not. When you call someone Abu something, it's a sign of both respect and familiarity. But it also creates this inextricable link between the father's identity and the accomplishments and failings of his eldest son. Now, Ghazi's single status is definitely seen as a failing. And in Arab culture, it's a failing for the same reasons as it is in Western culture. Basically, people wonder what's wrong with you. And if you've ever been single in your 30s, you know what that's like. For Ghazi, that pressure to get married is worse. It's kind of like a scarlet letter. He's walking around with this name attached to a son who is not married. Every time his relatives or those around him ask him anything, it's like, so, oh, how's your son? Did your son him? No. Basically, it depresses the guy. His parents offered to find him a nice Muslim girl, but Ghazi refused. The last thing he wanted was to get roped into an arranged marriage with someone too religious. So his parents nagged him for years. And then Ghazi's dad got sick. So he had cancer of the kidneys. They removed one of his kidneys. The second operation, we removed the other half. I'm walking home with him from the hospital, and he just stopped me at a stoplight. And I remember exactly where it was, like Court, Court and Warren in Brooklyn. And he turns to me as we're waiting for this light to change, and he, he turns and he goes, you know, I want to see your children before I die. That statement right there propelled me to do things that I'd never thought I would do. So I did something very impulsive. I um, had a conversation with my mom, which I never thought I would have with her. But I was like, look, I want to compromise with you guys. I want a woman who is more on the modern side of things. We're Jordanian, Palestinian. I think Queen Rania of Jordan is amazingly beautiful. If I can find someone like Queen Rania of Jordan, I would be so happy. And so... My mom's exact words, Queen Rania, yeah, her family's from Tulkarim, where our relatives live. I'll tell you what, in Tulkarim, it's like going to a lemon tree. You could pick all the Queen Ranyas you want. You could just pluck them out. And she did this thing with her hands where she mime plucking a Queen Rania off a tree. And I'm like visualizing 
like beautiful women hanging like Queen Rania on a tree that I would just pluck out when I got there. So I book a ticket. I fly into Ben Gurion where I was proceeded to be interrogated. And I have my American passport. An American passport has some cachet to it. It's not just any passport. It's America's passport. So I kind of walk up and then there's this girl directing people to either passport Israeli control or other international visitors passport. So I walk up to her. She looked at my thing. She looked at me. I, she, I now know she sees the Arab name. She goes, uh, what is your purpose to coming to Israel? I said, uh, oh, I'm going to go see my family in Tulkaram. Tulkaram? Go over there. Go to that. And I turn around and I see this little room with just, it was like, it's the equivalent of like a smoker's room, you know, and they have these like see-through windows where people can go in and just smoke. It's such a sad thing. You just see people pacing around, smoking, and just no one is smiling. No one's talking to each other. This was the same room, but it was just full of Arabs waiting to be questioned by immigration, Israeli immigration. And then you're in the little room, you're kind of hanging out, and you're wondering, well, why are these other people in the little room? I mean, I can understand the guy with the beard named Muhammad who was there. I was like, all right, dude, you, I mean, come on, you, you know, what were you expecting? I mean, there's no way they're going to let you through. Um, so you start judging other people in the little room. Um, and then there was this one um, white European girl. Why are you here? And she was like, oh, I took Middle Eastern studies back in Oxford. I was like, oh. So they're like, it's like she just took the wrong class in college and she ended up in the little room. So I didn't feel bad after that. Six hours later, Ghazi gets out of the airport and into a cab. The cab driver is Israeli, so he can't go into certain areas of the West Bank. So he stops at the checkpoint near the entrance to Tulkarim. He lets me out, takes so much money. I grab my suitcase. I turn around. The guy is like literally dirt is flying in the air. He's already gone. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck is going on? And I'm walking towards the checkpoint. And now I'm walking towards soldiers with a huge suitcase who are literally looking at me with their guns up, not pointing at me, but they're like, kind of like, what is this fucking guy doing? And I'm like, oh, shit. This is when it dawns on me that you are, this might be a really big mistake. You should not have left Brooklyn. I get to the checkpoint thing. They look at me. They look at my passport. And they let me in. So I go into Tulkaram and I grab a taxi there. Go to what my father told me to go to, which is a section of the refugee camp that my family lives in. Harat al-Balauna, neighborhood of the Balauna. The Balauna is my family tribal name. And that is where I pull up and, you know, meet my family. And then eventually they start taking me around to meet women. I think that first day we went to see two girls. So in Western cultures, you have these dating rituals. The first date you go for coffee or a drink, never dinner. You ask each other the same boring questions. And you basically know in 20 minutes whether or not you're interested. In Arab culture, there's also this matchmaking ritual, but it's a little different. Here's how it works. You sit down, there's the men of the girl's family on one side of the, the living room. My family guys sit on one side. And then you're just kind of waiting there. You kind of small talk. Um, people are like chain smoking these rooms. And like, I'm like from New York. I'm like dying here. Um, and then eventually the girl, and, and it's almost every time verbatim, the girl comes out with a tray of drinks. She serves all the men. The last drink is for you. She makes eye contact with you, then sits with her relatives. And then you just sit and you just stare at each other like something's supposed to happen. It's such a weird thing 
But a lot of these girls would come out of these rooms, and I'm thinking Queen Rania all the way. I'm thinking this is going to be a hot girl coming through this door. And the first woman he met was beautiful. Turned out to be my 17-year-old second cousin. She was actually kind of cute. But the cousin thing was a deal-breaker for Ghazi. And from there, things kind of go downhill. The whole time you're there, you're like, this is really not what I signed up for. I sat with one girl, Islamic girl, who asked me, um, do you pray? Because they made us sit. You're allowed to, like, sit with the family, and then you can sit privately, but her brother is sitting in a room, like, watching you. It's like a double date with the brother who is, like, so, like, intensely Islamic, like, staring you down, kind of. And so this girl, um, who's a pharmacist, uh, so you can go, oh, she's like a scientist. And she goes, oh, do you pray? I said, no, I, I really, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm not going to lie. I don't pray. She goes, oh, you're going to go to hell. And I was like, okay, well, that just kind of just killed any kind of thought of this going anywhere. Not that it was, but you've been on many dates in New York where it's not, you're going to go to hell. It's, can I get the check, please? All right, I guess she's not into me. This was like, you're going to go to hell. I guess that's Tukaram's version of, can I please have the check? A week goes by, a week and a half. Ghazi's going from house to house, drinking tea, meeting women. But his efforts are fruitless. On top of that, the conditions of the refugee camp are really starting to get to him. The refugee camp is just like such a depressing thing. Kids with no shoes on, people are poor, dirt everywhere. I would take three showers a day. Nice Jewish settlements with nice clean houses across the fence, which I watch every day. And I, I wish, why couldn't my family have been Jewish settlers? Why? Why? So um, I had a nervous breakdown. A nervous breakdown being you cry, scream, and then uh, walk through a refugee camp uh, just cursing yourself. Eventually, Ghazi's cousin finds him wandering around the refugee camp, weeping, and he brings him back home. We come back, and then, like, someone goes, look, there's this girl. Let's just go see her. She's at an amusement park with her mom. We know her. We already talked. We're gonna, they're going to meet us there. So I go with my cousin and my, my niece. I'm not expecting anything. I'm already, like, checked out. I'm already going. I'm going back to New York. That's it. I'm done. I kind of did what I had to do here for my father. Get to the amusement park, meet the mom. She goes, oh, she's with her sister on the Ferris wheel. Why don't you go see her, you know? All right, so I walk to Ferris wheel. And it's a Ferris wheel supposed to do a 360. It's supposed to do circles, but this is to cut them. The Ferris wheel is not doing 360s. It is doing a 180. So it would go up and it come down like a crescent moon. And I'm thinking, all right, is this like some Islamic thing where it's like doing a crescent shape? No, and I talked to someone, it's like, no, man, man. It's like everything is breaking down in here. The bumper cars are not bumping. They had like a zoo. The snake died, they told me. It's like so sad, the conditions there. I mean, I mean people need... And so... Anyway, so I'm trying to figure out what this girl looks like because the, the Ferris wheel is coming down, going up, coming down, going up. And now I'm fixated on a very overweight girl. I'm like, great, that's her. So the Ferris wheel um, thing stops and people start getting off. And it's the overweight girl passes, doesn't say anything. I'm like, okay, it's not her. But this girl gets out and I like focus on her. And the girl looked like Audrey Hepburn. She wasn't wearing a hijab, very Western looking, had really cool looking jeans. I say hello to her. She's a little shy. I'm like, it's understandable. This girl doesn't want to say anything to me, right? We walk back to her mom. I sit with her mom. We're talking. The conversation turns to, you know, whatever. Would you ever let your daughter go to live in America? I live in New York. It's really nice there. Mom's like, yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a done deal there. I was like, oh, if the mom is agreeing to this, it's cool. Um, 
I'm walking back with my cousin. I'm like, dude, done. Let's just, I'm ready. Let's get the guys. Let's just do this. That next day, we go to the house. We do the sit down with the men. We do this kind of ketuba. Ketuba in, the, in Arabic is kitab kind of um, haggling back and forth of how much money do we put for the mgeddim, which is what, what do you put forward if she were to get divorced, which is just to protect a woman in Islamic law. 10,000 dinars, which is about $15,000 back then, as I was told. Done deal. Let's sign. Next morning, we go to the Islamic Sharia court, and then I sign this wedding contract, and I sign it in front of the, the judge there, the Islamic judge. And now Ghazi, and let's call her Farah, are legally married. They met the other day, and now they're married. So now they're allowed to be alone in a room together. At that point, her family starts to allow me into their house because I wasn't allowed to. I was like a stranger, but now I'm like the son-in-law. So Ghazi's staying with the family for a few days while they make arrangements for a big wedding party. And one night, Farah walks into his room. She comes in and she goes, oh, I want to show you pictures of my, my brother, who her brother's a, a police officer in training. She comes from a, a cop family. And she opens up this f- folder and there's a bunch of photos in there. Just photos of her brother doing kind of like an obstacle course. He's climbing the rope. He's like running. It's hot out. You can see guys with their shirts off. And then at a certain point, it's him posing with his shirt off. And then him posing with his shirt off with a gun, like a machine gun, cigarette in his mouth, like seductive pose. And then she turns to me, she goes, isn't he tasty? I'm like, huh? Isn't he tasty? And she goes, can't you see why all the girls want him? I'm like, but the way she said it, I'm like, what the hell, Jess? It's like the fourth day, and I'm like, this family's nuts. And at this point, Ghazi's also beginning to realize that the family is using him for his money. I'm buying them stuff, buying them groceries. They're asking me, I'm like, this is weird. This is not, you're as an Arab guest, usually Arabs are supposed to be, you're the guest, you're not supposed to buy anything. This is the opposite. So Ghazi makes the decision. We're going to go buy a wedding dress the next day. If she asks for an expensive wedding dress, I'm done with her. I'm going to tell her I can't marry you. And sure enough, the dress that Farah and her mother pick out is really expensive. I kind of was like, tell her we're going to another wedding gown store. I think that's a little little high. Mother comes out, doesn't look happy. My wife comes out, doesn't look happy. Start walking, silence. And I turn to my wife. I'm like, what's wrong? Oh, you know what's wrong. You shouldn't have upset my mother. She said it in such a way that I just stopped without, it's been building up. I was like, you know what? Can't do this. I divorce you. I've had enough of you. Turn around. That was the last, I left her in that shot. That was the last time in my life I ever saw this girl. I walk to the refugee camp, right, from, from the town center. I tell my uncle, I got to get out of this. Don't worry, don't worry, stop, stop. You, 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 like, don't cry. I'm like crying. I'm like 34-year-old guy crying. I've been like robbed at gunpoint in Brooklyn, and I never cried then. I peed on myself, but I didn't cry. And here I am like walking through this room, just crying, just like grown man crying. He's like, stop, don't cry. I know this great lawyer. I'm like, who is this lawyer? He goes, don't worry. He's the best in all of Tulkaram. His name is Arafat Arafat. It was enough to make me stop crying and go, Arafat Arafat? He's like, yes, Arafat Arafat. He's the best lawyer in all of Tulkaram. 
Sogazi walks back into town to meet the lawyer. The guy's wearing like shorts, like a Mickey Mouse t-shirt or something. And he's like, tell me, what, what happened? I was like, Arafat, Arafat, this is what happened. He goes, did you enter her? And he made a, a hole with his finger and he put the... I said, no, I tried to. I wish I had entered her. He goes, okay, that's good. That's good. And he sits back in his chair and he thinks, that's good. I said, listen, I got to get out of here. I've had it. I'm nervous breakdown. I've been crying. Look at my eyes. He goes, why were you crying? Because men don't cry. He's like, so she's like, this is too much for me. He goes, don't worry. I'm going to make it all better. He goes, sign this. It's a power of attorney. I will be you here in Tulkaram. Go back to America. I will take care of this for you. And then I go home and I get this call from her uncle, the chief of police, who, as I know now, is a nut job. He has had people's legs broken for, for my wife, just whistling or like saying something to her in a, in a like a come on way and sending people to like break their legs. Like two guys ended up in wheelchairs for like two months or something like that. Some weird beat down. Now, this is the guy that's calling me that's saying, oh, I'm going to send a police car to come get you. And we should really talk about this because you're not just going to leave her here like this. I'm like, I started freaking out. This guy's going to kill me. I said, listen, I'm really emotional. I can't talk right now. I need to drink some tea. Relax. I'll come see you in the morning. He goes, you're, you're going to come in the morning? I said, yeah. I said, where am I going to go? I'm in Tulkaram. He goes, all right. I'll send a car for you in the morning. hung up the phone, ran into my room in that refugee camp, house of my uncles, packed that suitcase up. Everyone had gone to sleep. And I just lay there with the suitcase, holding the suitcase like, like it was my mother. And every time a light would come under the door, I think they're coming for me. They're coming. They're going to come get me. And I wait. I know the buses start running at like five. I pick up that suitcase. I don't even say anything to my relatives. I run through that door. And now I'm running through the refugee camp. It's like semi-dark. The sun is coming out. People are, chickens are like cackling. And I'm running with the suitcase on my head. And I'm like running through alleyways. People are in their underwear. I see people through windows. I see people having breakfast. I see the news. I'm like running through dark alleys. And I get to the bus, get on that bus, that yellow bus. I remember getting on that bus. I'm like, oh, please don't let them stop this bus at the checkpoint. Got past the Palestinian checkpoint, get to the Israeli checkpoint. Now we're on our road. End up in Ramallah. And then he makes it to Jerusalem, where he gets a hotel room and hides out until his flight back to New York. Meanwhile, the men from Ghazi's family and Farah's family hold a meeting to discuss the divorce. Because this is not just an issue between two people. When Ghazi abandoned Farah, he didn't just mistreat her. This was an affront to her family. And then it came out that I had, in my hysteria, told someone in town that she's having sex with her brother. I said, she's not going to have sex with me. She's having sex with her brother. Like, because I'm having a nervous breakdown. This, like, coupled with the fact that I just divorced her, got back to the brother. So the brother said he had dishonored our family by saying I had sex with my sister. I issue a fatwa against this guy. If he is to show his face in Tulkaram at any point, I will kill him dead in the street. The men in my family didn't really put up a fight. They said, this is our son. We really would hope he reconsider. About a week later, Ghazi makes it back to Brooklyn, fully intact. And he talks to his dad about what happened. Oh, it was like nothing. It was like, you'll, you'll get better. It's okay. It was like such a nonchalant... No, here's a punchline. Was not dying. Yeah. It's now four years later, and Ghazi's dad is still alive. 
Ghazi is 38, still single, and his parents are still trying to get him married. Not only that, they still want him to marry in the traditional way, the way he did with Farah. He just Jewish guilted me in his own Arab way to get married for him. And, you know, I kind of feel it still. You love your parents so much that you end up hating yourself, and that's where I am today. I love them so much that I hate myself. Look at what I did. I went and I got married, and, and I had nervous breakdowns, and I hate myself for doing I shouldn't have not done that, but I did it because I love them. Shoshi is a producer and correspondent at TLV1 Radio. Her story was a co-production with TLV1 and featured music by Poddington Bear. Coming up, after 37 years of marriage, a couple from the Karlibach Moshav of Mevomodim, population 252, talk about love. Act 2, Michael and Lea. Thirty-seven years. It's almost our anniversary, sweetie. By the wow. way, hint, hint. My name is Michael Golub. I'm Leia, Leia Golub. I'm now sixty-four. I'm sixty-one years old, and I have six children, eight grandchildren, another one at least that we know of on the way. I grew up in suburban New Jersey. I was always very popular. I did well in school without really trying. Totally opposite of me. Machai once said to me that uh, we probably wouldn't even have been friends, but I always kind of felt bad for those guys that were always being made fun of and, you know, had a hard time, so we probably would have still connected. I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama until I was 18. I wasn't much of a social person. I was like a loner, kind of really young. I was 15, 14, started doing yoga because nobody else was being my friend. So spirituality was my friend. Uh, I've been in Israel since 1970, made Aliyah on November 5th, 1970. After going from kibbutz to kibbutz and not working out and trying to work, I decided, forget this Israel trip, man. I'm going to Tibet. Tibet is the place with the top of the world, and you, all the gurus and the, everything. And all of a sudden, I had this spiritual experience called a bat call, like a voice of heaven, go to Jerusalem. And I said, why don't you check it out? Next day, I bought to Phil and start keeping Chavez. So crazy. We didn't even talk. But I walked out thinking, I don't know, I saw this man... And I'm not saying he's my soulmate, but I said to my mom, you know, I met this guy, I really feel like he's my guy. Friday night, we ate, and then we went to the shul. After learning some Torah, I stood up, and I said to Leah, will you be the mother of my children? And I said, okay. And she said, okay. <laughs> Two weeks later, we got married. I think of when we stood under the chuppah and I remember feeling like this was the most, I couldn't love anybody more than I did in that moment. And now I think of it and I just want to laugh. Like we didn't, we didn't even know each other. We didn't know anything. I didn't know what it meant to really love somebody so completely. first married, do you remember what you said to me? What? You were married before, and you said to me that, um, you know, my first wife, she didn't really understand how much I loved God, and 
I just want you to know that no matter what, I'll always love God more. Like, I can't love you that much. I can only love God the most, not you. And I remember thinking, I don't know, that sounds so screwed up. Like, that can't possibly be true. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be with someone who doesn't love me the most. But somehow I still knew that we were supposed to be together. And then years and years later, you said to me that the truth is, the way I love you is the way I love Hashem. You know, Leila, when I think back of all our lives together, 37 years, you know, if I count right, I just wanted to thank you so much. Thank you so much for having guts to come to Israel and marry me and let me have these visions and these visions to last forever. Yikes, I can't look at you because I'm going to (laughs) cry. My illness, I have uh, cancer, bladder cancer that's in my whole pelvic area. It's called an aggressive urolithiaethial. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but a very invasive and aggressive form of cancer. And uh, once it was able to spread throughout his body, there's there aren't even statistics. You know, it's exciting for me. To me, it was clear life and death. How exciting. We did very aggressive treatment, and Mikhail, you were basically falling Falling apart. I believe in Mashiach, and I don't fill my head at all with thoughts of what will happen then. There's a place of timelessness when you love somebody that has nothing to do with their body or... uh, their ability to do things. There is a time when time will fold over, but uh, it definitely, I still want to be in this world. I feel that I'm still connected to this world. If I could fold the time over, I would really like that. Maybe my question would be to you, to as um, if it was my last day. Yeah. What would you say to me? I'd say let's sit and learn a little bit. Right. <laughs> I'd say uh, like I can't walk because it's hard for me to walk. But uh, but then I would sit on the deck and just be outside with you, learn some Torah, drink some tea. And um, I'd be davening my guts out that we'd still have more time. Benny Becker produced that piece. Benny's our new producer here at Israel Story. The beautiful music was composed and performed by Colin Oldham. At the end of every month, a little yellow post-it is left on my door. In the top right corner is the never-absent Bet Hay, or Baruch Hashem, and around the edges are usually some doodles of flowers or leaves or something. 
Then in the middle of the post-it, in super neat letters, it says, Hey Mishi, it's bill time again. Stop by to sort it out. The girls from downstairs. So yeah, even though they're all very much women, as you'll hear in a sec, to me they're always collectively the girls from downstairs. This is their love story. Act 3, it's been six dates. I'm the only non-Orthodox person who lives on my street. And when I moved into this apartment a few years ago, I had just come back from seven years abroad, and my mom was all excited that here, finally, I was coming back to Israel and I was going to find a nice Jewish girl. And it just so happened that in the apartment beneath me, in my apartment building, there were three Orthodox girls living there. And they were all in their mid to late 30s, single, and intensely looking for a match. So as you can imagine, matchmaking was the sole topic of conversation in their apartment, in my apartment, in the staircase. And the Orthodox dating scene in Nachlaot in Jerusalem is highly hierarchical. And unfortunately for my neighbors, who are really, really sweet girls and really attractive and pretty girls also, they were at the bottom of the pecking order because they were A, considered old, B, they had not grown up Orthodox, and C, they were, I hope they don't mind me saying this, presumably not virgins. As a result, even though they were really great girls, I really, really liked them, they would constantly be set up with all kinds of, you know, 60-year-old widowers, people with weird addictions, people with 11 kids, all kinds of really great catches. And what they would do is they would go to a matchmaker, a shadchanit, which is sort of like the analog version of OkCupid. And they would sit there with the Shadchanit and tell them all kinds of things about themselves and what they were looking for. And the Shadchanit would have lists and lists and lists of guys. And she'd be like, hey, how about Itzchak? And then they would go out on these first dates with these guys. They were religious enough that they didn't want to be seen in public on these first dates. But also, on the other hand, they didn't want to be just in their room, obviously. So most of these first dates took place on our staircase. And I have a window that looks out right at the staircase. So I would be sitting in bed watching marathons and marathons of the West Wing. And I would hear through the window snippets of these first dates. And these first dates were like first dates from hell. If I ever went on a first date like this, I would never in a million years think of going on another second date. There was no chit-chat, no small talk whatsoever. They would be sitting on different landings, and they would get down to business immediately. It would be like, okay, so what is the kitchen going to look like? What kind of kashot regulations are we going to follow? What's the Shabbat table going to look like? And meanwhile, on my computer, Jed Bartlett's kind of pounding on the podium and delivering these phenomenally eloquent liberal speeches. There's evil in the world. There'll always be, and we can't do anything about it. And I hear from outside... Okay, so are you going to shave your head and wear a wig, or are you going to wear a regular head covering? And then usually the next morning I would bump into one of the girls on the staircase, and we would have sort of a post-mortem of the date. And just the way I realized that these dates sucked, so did they. So nothing really materialized from any of these dates. Now, one of the three neighbors was a girl called Meital. That's actually not her name, but it is for this story. And... 
Mital was 39 years old, and she had grown up completely secular in Tel Aviv. She had lived with a boyfriend for seven years, and they broke up when she was 29, and I guess that's when she became religious. Mital was very harsh in her religiosity. So, like, I have a dog, Nomi, and Nomi would run into their apartment all the time and jump on Metal's bed, and Metal would love Nomi and play with her all the time. And I kept on saying, Metal, you should get a dog. You love dogs so much. And she would say, oh, no, religious people don't have dogs, which isn't even true. But that's sort of her perception of religiosity. Or she would constantly say, oh, I'm not looking for romance. I'm just looking for something very practical for, for a partner. Anyway, Metal would go on these first dates from hell as well on the, on the staircase. And one day, she was matched by the matchmaker with a guy called Dan. Now, let me just describe Dan a second. Imagine a Jewish Taliban warrior with a beard till his belly button, really, really long peot, side locks, And, to cap it all off, Dan is a sheep herder from Bat'ain, which is one of the more extreme settlements near Hebron. I saw Dan at the very beginning of the date, and I liked him immediately. Nomi, my dog, loved him because he smelled like sheep, so she was all on top of him. And I went up to my apartment and was on their first date. And their first date, like many of the other dates, was horrible. But for some reason, Metal decided that she was going to continue on with Dan. And they went out on maybe five or six dates, and I would say I was on maybe three or four of them. I should just say that the dates didn't get much better. They just clarified in great detail exactly what they thought the house would look like and how they would run it. So about three weeks later, I bumped into Meital on the staircase. And Meital said, Mishi, you know, I've gone out with Dan six times already. I really need to decide whether I want to marry him. I was like, Meital, that's completely crazy. Why don't you, I don't know, like maybe sleep with him beforehand? Of course, Meital did not appreciate my suggestion. And instead of taking what I thought was good advice, she decided that she was going to travel to Uman in the Ukraine. And she was going to pray at Rabbi Nachman's tomb and get some enlightenment as to whether she should marry Dan or not. So that did not seem to me to be the best way to go about this, but she was quite convinced. So she came up to my apartment. She said that she was going to pray for me too, that I should also find a nice girl. And off she was to the Ukraine. She was there for a week. She prayed, 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 prayed every single day over Rabbi Nachman's tomb. And she finally decided she came back to Israel. She called up Dan and she told him that they were breaking up. So, okay, I was quite upset. I had liked Dan a lot, but now Dan was out of the picture. Meital continued going out on these first dates from hell, and nothing happened, nothing materialized. And then she was about to turn 40. And she became really anxious about this birthday and about the fact that she was still not married. So she went to see a rabbi whose specialty is name combinations. You tell him Isaac and Sarah, and he's like, yes, that's a good combination, or no, that's a horrible combination. So she goes into the rabbi, and this sounds a little bit like a joke, but she says, like, rabbi, rabbi, why can't I find 
a husband. And he says, well, have you gone out with anyone recently? And she said, yeah, well, I went out with this sheep herder, Dan. And he's like, Dan? And she says, yeah, Dan. And then the rabbi looks at her and he says, Dan and Metal is the best name combination that I can imagine. And she's like, no, 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 Rabbi, don't tell me this. And, and the rabbi's like, yeah, I'm telling you, Dan and Metal, it's like a match made in heaven. So Metal, instead of just saying that this guy's a total charlatan and storming out of his office, calls up Dan on the phone, tells him to get over there. Dan comes to the office, the rabbi tells him the same thing, and two weeks later, they got married. I tried to convince Dan to move into the apartment with the girls. I told him that it was a very European thing to do. They did not seem to think that this was such a good idea and moved to Batayn. And even though I really tried for a while, it's hard to keep in touch with her. She seems to want to leave her bachelorette days behind her. So I don't really know what's going on with her in her life. But I imagine her on a Friday afternoon, sitting by a natural spring in the Judean hills near Hebron, breastfeeding her newborn baby. Dan is running around after all of the sheep, and some of their older kids are picking figs from the tree. Unfortunately for me, Meital's prayers in Uman didn't really help, at least yet. I'm still in the apartment, though, and... Who knows, maybe the magic of the staircase will strike again. I am a honeybee, shun up from the colony, and they won't let me in. So I left the hive, they took away all my stripes and broke off both my Okay, we've arrived at our final act of the season. Act 4, Checkpoints and Secrets. If you're dedicated Vox Tablet listeners, this piece by Daniel Estrin might actually be familiar. It first aired there a couple of years ago, but we like it so much and it's such a perfect fit that we just had to include it in this love episode. Here we go. Well, the first chat with him was like any other chats in a dating website. His profile said that he's in Jerusalem, and he messaged me. He was a very good-looking man, charming, very intelligent, intriguing. He was white, blue eyes, innocent. (laughs) I was speaking to him in Arabic, and he saw my pictures, and I didn't seem like an Arab. He thought I was fooling him. And uh, eventually I told him I was uh, Jewish, and he was shocked. And I asked him, if there's a problem, and he says, no, no. He was not the first Israeli I talked to, but they all had a problem with meeting Palestinian guys. Some of them, they thought it would be dangerous to meet a Palestinian guy, like maybe it's a trap or something. We were chatting every day, getting to know each other. And uh, it didn't take long time to suggest meeting the next Saturday. I still remember his face, how happy he was. I told him that you are in Jerusalem and I'm in the West Bank and uh, there is a wall between us that it's not a good idea to, to draw expectations. Like we cannot really go far with it. But he was so excited and he really wanted it and I also wanted it. 
I uh, invited him to come to my house and he met my family and they were surprised in a nice way like wow you're Jewish <laughs> later my uh, family talked to me and they told me it would be a problem if soldiers come to the house and find him in our house and uh, I agreed and uh, he stopped coming to my house and then my mother once asked me about him she said uh, how is he we don't see him anymore <laughs> but mom you asked me to stop bringing him home she said no it's fine it's okay if he doesn't sleep at our house, but if he just visits, it's fine. The same day or the very next day, he came to my house. Uh, he, he was like part of the family, you know. I don't know. We felt that they know that we have something special, but I'm very sure that they never thought that we are in a relationship. I really can't tell what would happen if someone... Uh, from Palestine knew if I uh, that I am gay people here in Palestine they say that uh, oh that guy was talking like this he should be killed or something like this I live in a big lie which is hiding my sexuality you know I told my parents a few months after we started going out. They they were very against it. They said that um, that I should think about myself and if I want to mess up my future with this. I was smuggling him to Jerusalem almost every week in the weekend driving through the checkpoint in full confidence um, because the soldiers, if you look Israeli, they let you go. If you look Palestinian, they stop you and they check for permits. Of course, he had to smuggle me because I uh, didn't have uh, permission to enter uh, Jerusalem. And even when they signaled us to stop or to slow down, I was speeding up like with full confidence showing them that everything is okay, you really don't need to talk to us. And it worked every time. Everything in the city was new to me. So I needed really to, to meet people, to go to bars. I, I loved meeting people and being myself with them. Like, you know, because I have been hiding it for the whole of my life, so it's the time to use to, to make up those years of hiding. We were in a party, in a gay bar, and uh, we went home, back to his home. It was supposed to be the first time uh, that he would spend the night in my house. We were very excited about that. And all of a sudden we saw a police car um, going towards us, and the police officers went out, out of the, the car and um, asked for IDs. They usually do stop people in the middle of the night, usually looking for drugs. I think they were a bit surprised to find a, an illegal Palestinian. 
they asked if, if we were going to my home and I said yes and that's a felony to host an illegal uh, Palestinian. They asked me for a permit and I told them I don't have a permit. So they just took us to the police office. In the interrogation they asked us how did we meet? What were we thinking? We didn't want to tell them about the nature of our relationship because there were stories of um, Israeli secret services finding out that people were gay and using it as a tool to pressure them to cooperate. If you don't cooperate with us, we're going to tell your family or we're going to tell the Palestinian Authority. And it was less an interrogation and more a warning, like, you can be friends, you can be whatever you want, talk on the phone, go to see him in his house, if you can go there. But why bring him to Israel? No, you can't do it. Eventually I was released and he was taken to the checkpoint and dropped at the checkpoint to go back home. Yeah, after that, after we calmed down a bit, we knew that there was no other way, so I would bring him to Jerusalem again. For me, it was basically love. Like, I didn't want to hang it on the wall that, oh, we are a Palestinian and an Israeli. Guys who are in love, you know? But it also made me happy to, like, that we are doing something special, you know, and uh, at some point I thought it would last forever. Yeah, we broke up a few days ago. It's very confusing. I cannot really separate the situation. The political situation from our personal situation but the fact is that I'm the one responsible for having this relationship because if I don't come to his place or bringing him to Jerusalem then we won't be together and that creates a very uneven relationship it's to affirm the power relations that we have as two sides of the conflict is to bring it to a relationship. It's not what I want to have. I don't want to to reaffirm a situation that is uh, that I'm against. Yesterday was a very difficult day. He sent his friend to take his stuff. Okay. I sent the stuff which are his own, like he had a few underwears in, uh, in my closet. But he, he sent me my stuff and they are all stuff I bought for him from New York. He never worn this shirt. I really don't know what, what he means by sending me. Like he's erasing me from his closet and his room. And anyway, 
I am more and more really not sorry about him. We had a very big love. And that's a, a very meaningful thing in every in everyone's lives. My hope is that he gains something from this relationship and that that now he believes that love is possible in his life and that new opportun opportunities are possible. But I think it can happen only elsewhere, not here. And I really wish that he would find his way out of here. Of course, Palestine is, is my country and I was born here. But for me, my, uh, my home is the place where I am myself. I really don't feel that Palestine is my home. I, I, feel, I feel like a stranger in this place. I don't want to, to be confused if I broke up with my boyfriend because we just had issues or because of the political situation. I want to, to be it more clear to me. My intention is to leave the country because I had enough. Everything is against you, everything. The law is against you. The situations of gays and Palestinian society is against you. The cultural differences are against you. Your parents are against you. This separation is so deep and when individuals try to break it, they they wear out. I'm, I'm all worn out. That story was produced by Daniel Estrin with support from PRX and Bending Borders. We're going to end our show today with a beautiful extended Israel moment, recorded and mixed by Elia Einhorn during his recent trip to Israel. Black and yellow? Yeah. Christmas. Christmas. Very fresh. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, give us some social media love. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. You can find all our previous English episodes at tabletmag.com. And don't forget the donate button once more. You can also find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. And of course, if you speak Hebrew, tune into our Hebrew episodes. Our site, israelstory.org, where you can hear everything from the very beginning. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments, so post on our Facebook page or email us at contact at israelstory.org. For music and mixing help on today's episode, a big thanks to Jonathan Grobert, Tarek Fuda, and Colin Oldham. Thanks to Dave Isay and Mike Garofalo at StoryCorps, Emily Harris, Avnil Shelem at TLV1, and to our friends and partners at Tablet Magazine. I'm Ishi Harman, and the Israel Story staff includes Yochai Meital, Roi Gilron, Shai Satra, Nava Winkler, Maya Kosover, Benny Becker, and Barry Finkel. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. That's it. We'll be back after a short break with a whole new and exciting season of Israel Story. So stay tuned for that, and meanwhile, Shalom Shalom. Shalom <laughs> Shalom